My Jesus there was pierced by thorns, by thorns run from the fall. Thus he who came the curse was torn to Second Timothy, chapter 3. We've been preaching on some messages about the second coming of Christ and uh, things concerning the last days. And this is one of those passages, Second Timothy, chapter 3. I'm going to read 
verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> Actually, let's uh, read through uh, verse, verse 12. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness. Now note that. Having a form of godliness. These are religious people. They're not pagans. Form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Jannes and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be made manifest unto all men, as theirs, that is Jannes and Jambres, also was. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. In the last days, so think about the last days. That phrase, last days, refers, of course, to the end times. The Bible has a lot to say about these times. Matthew 24, uh, we looked at Luke chapter 19, uh, Luke chapter 21. Many of those passages have to do with things that will take place actually during the tribulation, which will be prior to his revelation when he comes to the earth to set up his kingdom. But I believe here, and also another passage is 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, talks about, the, in the last days. But I believe here and also in Peter, he's talking about some things that are going to be characteristics of the times prior to his coming, even before the rapture, I believe, of, of his, his, his saints. And so as we're going to look at this this morning, it's, I must say, a lot of negatives here. So hold on to your seats. Um, but we're going to try and look at this and, and end with a positive so let's look to the Lord in prayer and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity and privilege that we have to be assembled together. We thank you for uh, your love for us and thank you for giving us your word that instructs us concerning these things. Father, I pray that you'd help us to have understanding and wisdom in these days in which we're living. They're days of great deception and of great falling away. But Father, help us not to be deceived. Help us not to be ignorant of the truth of your word, and to hold fast to the doctrines which we have learned. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Matthew twenty four twelve, the Bible says, And because of iniquity shall abound, the love of many 
shall wax cold. That's going to be one of the conditions of the last days. Many people are going to turn away from the truth. Their, their love for God is going to wax cold. And as it says here, that they would become lovers of their own selves. And Paul here describes him in writing to Timothy that these would be perilous times. Now the word perilous in verse 1, according to Strong's, means hard to do or hard to take. Troublesome, hard to bear, dangerous, fierce, savage. It's only used one other time in the Bible, and that's in Matthew 8, 28. And when he was come to the other side into the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. Stott said this, it's used in classical Greek, of wild animals and the raging sea. Now, as you think about that definition, hard to do, hard to take, hard to bear, troublesome, dangerous, and fierce and savage. Think about all the conditions of the world and think about the things that, that sometimes just you and I face, even here in this country, and the conditions worldwide, that fits pretty much everything. I mean, there, you know, even in our own nation, there's, there's, there's fierce and savage things that go on. People eating people's faces. Um, Clark said this in his commentary, quote, The description in this and in the following verses, the papists, that's the Roman Catholic Church, apply to the Protestants. The Protestants, in turn, applied to the Papists. Uh, Scott, Scott again, to the Jews and other heretics in general, but it is probable that the Apostle had some particular age in view in which there should appear some very essential corruption of Christianity. And I believe that this passage is very relevant for our day. Now, what we're going to do here is look at some definitions or descriptions of some of these terms. First of all, there's, there's, uh, so, so it's going to be perilous times. It's going to be times of lovers of self also in verse 2. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. Lovers of self. Uh, Hebert in his commentary said this, Lovers of self aptly heads the list since it is the essence of all sin and root from which all other characteristics spring. The word is literally self-lovers and points to the fact that the center of gravity of the natural man is self rather than God, unquote. So what he's telling us is then all these other words that are, that are given here following this lovers of self, of their own selves, is the fruit of self-love, of lovers of self. And these are, these are the characteristics of apostate Christianity. This is, again, the fruit of self-love. Again, this, this description that's given here, I believe, is given of, quote-unquote, Christians. They have a form of godliness. Paul tells us in verse 5, but deny the power thereof. This is mainstream Christianity in America. This is what it is. 
And I think once we go through these definitions and make some applications, I think you'll, you'll see that that's true. First of all, number one, characteristics of self-love or characteristics of apostate Christianity is covetous. Verse, verse two, lovers of their own selves, covetous. Loving of money. Loving of money. In 2 Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, and verses 1 through 3, <clears throat> Peter, in his epistle, says, But there are false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of, and through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. Through covetousness, he said, with feigned words, those are false words, or, or, uh, or have a, an appearance, it's to put on a show. That's the idea of feigning, it's to put on the skies. So through feigned words, they're going to make merchandise of you. Whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Merchandise. To make merchan- that word make, to make merchandise means to traffic or to trade. To use a person or thing for gain. The mega church movement is big business. Google sometimes, just for your curiosity and for your might make you angry, I don't know. The the wealthiest preachers in America. Kenneth Copeland's worth seven hundred and sixty million dollars. Um, Joel Steen's worth forty million dollars. Um, Rick Warren's worth twenty five million dollars. Billy Graham was worth twenty five million dollars. And, you know, Pat Robertson's worth $100 million. And you can go on and on and on. And then read their lifestyles. You know, there's some women on that list, too. And some of them have, bit, have admitted to being homosexual and on drugs. You know, there's books out. How to Marry for Money. Or How to Marry Money. Not, not, not How to Marry for Money. How to Marry Money. Uh, so covetous they are also number two boasters the word boaster means an empty pretender and again Peter says through feign words make merchandise of you and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on a lot of these because it's quite a lengthy list but they're, they're empty pretenders they pretend to be something they are not uh, they are, number three, proud, uh, showing oneself above others, overtopping, conspicuous above others, preeminent. They are, number four, blasphemers. The word blasphemer means speaking evil, slanderous, reproachful, railing, or abusive. Just confront one of them one time about their false doctrine and see what happens. Number five, disobedient to parents. Again, these are characteristics. Disobedient to parents. 
And again, this is, this is encouraged, and of course we see this everywhere, but this is encouraged by the philosophy of many parents. We need to let the children express themselves. Any of you get the North Raleigh News? Little paper? There's an article in there last week. I guess it got thrown away. I was going to see if I could write in response to it. But anyway, about, uh, I think he's a 10 or 12 year old boy whom his parents took to an all-girls store so he could buy girls' clothes. And they were, they were just commenting about how they were so appreciative that the store allowed them. He went into the girls' dressing rooms and tried things on, you know, and whatever. Anyway, and, and they were just so appreciative. And so people were, you know, it's on Facebook and all that. And, and, and the parents were just so happy that he was just, he was just himself. Do they realize what they're setting that child up for? A life of misery. He's going to become 16 sometime, and he still has male hormones. He's going to be a very confused young man. Why? Because dumb parents have encouraged him in his sin. And we got preachers, you know, I watched a interview of Joel Steen and three or four other people, and they were challenging him about why doesn't he call homosexuality a sin? And he says, Well, you know, I'm just an encourager. That's that's not my lane. I'm just an encourager. You know, I don't do it. But I wouldn't say that in my church. I don't go there. And this other guy said, you know, wouldn't you help? You've got 45,000 people that are supposedly members of your church. Wouldn't it help them to know what the Bible says about this transgender issue? Wouldn't you be helping families? And he said, well, again, you know, that's just not my lane. He's encouraging this. Anyway, enough of that sticking stuff. Uh, disobedient to parents. Unthankful it just simply means ungrateful. Uh, unholy means impious or wicked. Uh, if you notice in verse 3, and again, I'm not taking a lot of time here, without natural affection. Again, this is very prevalent in our day as well. We have sodomy, homosexuality, lesbians, parents killing their children, and children killing their parents. Truce breakers. Truce breakers. This is an interesting one. This word is is actually uh, I actually tried to uh, to get a definition out of Webster's and it's not really a word that's used anymore. This word means really means doesn't have the idea of breaking an agreement. It really has the idea, according to the, to, to Strong's and also uh, uh, Greek lexicon. The idea that cannot be persuaded to enter into a covenant or a commitment. So they cannot be persuaded to enter into a commitment or covenant. 
See, how many people want to go to church, but they don't want to be committed? How many people want the, the benefits of a marriage relationship, but don't want the bands, if you will, or the binding of a marriage commitment? You know, they will not be committed to God, his church, to marriage, etc. It's, it is being irresponsible. It boils down to a lack of willing to be accountable to anything. Truth breakers. False accusers. The word false accusers, it's translated devil 35 times. False accuser twice, slanderer once. Strong's describes it prone to slander, slanderous, accusing falsely. Supplied to a man who by opposing the cause of God may be said to act the part of the devil or to side with him. Um, false accusers. Incontinent, number 11. Incontinent means without self-control. You know, this, this of course, the story of no, no, no self-control can be written across almost everything today. Drugs, alcohol, food, work, shopping. I mean, look at Black Friday. It's coming up. People run over each other. Fight over things. Whatever we do, we often do it out of control. Incontinent. Fierce. means untamed or savage. Savage despisers of those that are good. In other words, they oppose not only not only oppose goodness, but they oppose good men. Uh, traitors means to be betrayers, like Judas, or like Henry Phillips, who befriended uh, uh, William Tyndale to betray him. They are heady. It means reckless or rash. Now think about that a little bit. Rash or reckless, the word heady. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 5, 39, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. Now, he said to search the Scriptures. Many people say they know God, and they, they profess they have a knowledge of God, but have they ever searched the Scriptures? Let me say it this way. They don't want to take the time. They just want to rush headlong on and not think about it. High-minded. Again, that goes back to your pride, being lifted up with pride. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. You know, this, this attitude marks our current age. You know, think of the, the advertising slogans of the 1990s. Nothing is taboo. Break all the rules. These are advertising slogans. To know no boundaries. Relax. No rules here. Peel off all inhibitions. Find your all or find your own road. Um, we are all hedonists. You know what a hedonist is? Somebody lives for pleasure. We are all hedonists. And want to do what feels good. 
That's what makes us human. Living without boundaries. Just do it. The message is all the same. Hey, you make your own rules. You do your own thing. You answer to no one. You're the one that matters. The universe resolve, evolves around you. That's the attitude. Jude in verse 4. In Jude in verse 4. Of course, Jude wrote about these things as well. But there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, here it is, turned the grace of our God into lasciviousness. In other words, just let loose and do whatever. And denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Lovers of pleasure. More than lovers of God. And then in verse 5 he says this, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such, turn away. So these have a form or an appearance of godliness. In other words, they're like Hillary Clinton, who says, you say one thing in public and another thing in private. You are one person in public and another in private. So they have a form of godliness. They have a, a, a the word godliness has a the, the, the means piety or reverence to God. So they have this appearance of reverence for God. You know, it's interesting that Joel Osteen talks about God a lot, but he never mentions the name Jesus Christ. From what I've read. Uh, to deny means to deny oneself or disregard. And, and the word power here, according to Strong's, means inherent power. Uh, and that word inherent means something existing in someone or something as permanent. So this power is an inherent power residing in a thing by virtue of its nature or which a person or thing exerts and puts forth. So, so he, he says they... They, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. So they don't have the power that makes life of God real. What is that inherent power that God that resides in us, that gives us life? It's the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God. And he says, these deny the power thereof. You know, Romans 8 9 says, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. You know, Paul talked about this power. Let's look at a couple of verses here. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'll send you down a rabbit trail. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 4. Speaking about this power, this inherent power that Paul had in his life, in his ministry. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 4 says, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. 
Then go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. Second Corinthians 12, verse 9, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. Now here he's talking about his infirmity that he had in his flesh that afflicted him, and he asked three times to have it removed, and, and the Lord said no. But he said, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So he's talking about an inherent or something that resided in him. Again, that's the Spirit of God. Uh, and look at Ephesians chapter 1. You know, Paul talks about this power all throughout his epistles. Ephesians 1, verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him in his own right hand in the heavenly places. So this power is to us who believe or put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. And again, chapter 3, verse 20, speaking about the same thing. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. And in Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. That's the power that lives in me. Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, the point here that he's making here to Timothy is, these people have never had a true born-again experience. They're lost. They're unsaved. They've never repented of their sins and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as a Lord and Savior. You say, preacher, do you think these mega church pastors are lost? I do. Let me let me let me illustrate it for you. This is uh, realnewsrightnow.com. Uh, July 9th, 2015. The, the title is, Protestant Leaders Declare Reunification of Churches Under the Holy See, which is the Roman Catholic Church. Following more than 500 years of separation, American and European Protestant leaders met with Pope Francis last week to finalize the reunification of, of the two churches under the Holy See. This historic agreement is the result of a year's worth of unpublicized, they wouldn't want you to know, Talks between Protestant leaders and the Vatican. Prominent American pastors. You ready? Joel Stein and Rick Warren. Respectively, as well as Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, were among the Protestant delegation that met with Pope Francis last week. Pastor Warren founder of Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, California, which is supposed to be a Southern Baptist church, spoke with numbers of the international press at St. Peter's Square saying, quote, Protestant, now this is Rick Warren, quote, Protestants as a people have a long history of heresy. The time for reconciliation is now in order to ensure a full and dogmatic transition into the folds of the church, unquote. Do you realize what he's saying? He's saying it's time for us to go back to the 
Roman Catholic Church, the true church. That's what he's saying. But it doesn't stop there. Moments before the meeting with reporters, the entire Protestant delegation, for the first time ever, entered the confessional to take part individually in the sacrament of penance. It's, quote, it's important that we participate in these sacred rituals before asking our congregation to do the same, unquote, said Pastor Osteen. Osteen adding that his time in the confession was, quote, an immensely moving experience, unquote. So what are they saying? They're saying, we need to go back to the Roman Catholic Church. This isn't the first time Osteen had mass. They had mass, too, by the way. And... Um, and one man said, another uh, another uh, guy here, uh, trying to think, Father Cliff Brogan, who's a former Protestant pastor, who was the first of the delegation to be ordained as a priest at the Vatican. Just wait. Oost, Joel Steen and, and Rick Warren, if time goes long enough, they'll be ordained as Catholic priests too. You just wait. Uh, the Vatican um, Said, secondly, we participate in the sacrament of the Eucharist by accepting the actual body and blood of Christ, an event known as transubstantiation, at the conclusion of the Holy Mass. So they took part in that too. And it, they concluded with this. This article concluded. One official said this, quote, We are, for the first time, one people, united under the Bishop of Rome, acting together, as the bride and servant of Christ, unquote. That's the whore of Revelation 17 and 18. You say, preacher, you think these guys are lost? Yeah, I do. Um, there are others. You know, John Hagee's another one. He wrote, wrote some books. But these guys love to write books. They make lots of money doing that. Uh, sensational books, you know. John Hagee wrote a book called Flor About the Four Blood Moons. Uh, it's a bunch of garbage. Um, and then he wrote another one. It's called In the Defense of Israel. And uh, notice what this is. What this is what he said. This is this is his uh, description of the book. This book will expose the sins of the fathers and the vicious abuse of the Jewish people. In the defense of Israel, that's the title of the book, will shake Christian theology. It scripturally proves that the Jewish people as a whole did not reject Jesus as Messiah. It will also prove that Jesus did not come to earth to be the Messiah. It will prove that there was a Calvary conspiracy between Rome, the high priest, and Herod to execute Jesus as, the as an insurrectionist, too dangerous to live. Since Jesus refused, by word and deed, to claim to be the Messiah, how can the Jews be blamed for rejecting what was never offered? Read this shocking expose in defense of Israel. Unquote. 
Well, my Bible says in John 1.41, he first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which being interpreted is the Christ. By the word, the Greek word Christos means the same thing that Messiah means, anointed one. And Christ is used 300 sometimes in the New Testament, I think. And you're saying that Jesus did not come to be the Messiah? What did he tell the Samaritan woman? She said, when Messiah comes, he said, I am he. I am he. These guys are false prophets. A form of godliness. Your church has become big business. It's just a theatrical show. It's a means of making money. They are making merchandise of you. You know, you can go to Raleigh now. To, you know, there's, I got this advertised flyer in the mail here not too long ago, but it was about some kind of Baptist church, and they were having pet blessings. Saturday morning. Come bring your pet for your pet blessing. Uh... You know, it's, it could be called the Hollywood Christian Hour. That's what it amounts to. Playing in a church near you. By the way, this isn't new. This goes all the way back to when Constantine united, tried to unite churches with the state. And the Harlot Church was born. And we know it as the Roman Catholic Church. So they have a form of godliness. They present themselves as ministers of the gospel. But they are also masters of deception. Notice verse 6 of our text says, For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers lusts. Now, that's not a nice-sounding verse for the ladies, I know. But we do understand that women tend to be easier deceived, more easily deceived than men. And and it, when it's talking about silly women laden with sins, in other words, they've got, they've got sin heaped up in their lives, and they're, and they're looking for some way to, to, to make themselves feel good. And these guys give a message of feel goody. To you. Everything they want you to make you feel good. I mean, read the read the book titles of Joel Steen's books. It's all about feeling good. You gotta love yourself, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But they creep into it, it means to put on or to envelope or to hide in, to insinuate oneself into to enter. Look at, again, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul, Paul warned us about these kinds of people. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. I have an article here. This was... Uh, 
March 5, 1995, Sebring, Florida. Reverend John Canning delivered the eulogy after Leo and Hazel Gleese were slain, telling mourners that he'd been so close to the couple that he called them mom and dad. Six weeks later, Mr. Canning was let off to jail in handcuffs. On Friday, he was charged with beating and strangling Mr. and Mrs. Gleese, both 90. The police said the Gleeses were killed in their home on January 2nd after they discovered that Mr. Canning had abused the power of attorney they had given him and was stealing their savings. Quote, it's the most despicable thing I've ever heard of, unquote, said Phil Raymer, an agent for the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. Of all people in the world you should be able to trust, it's your pastor. Yeah, you would think so. It's not always the case. Masters of deception. And then they're unable to acknowledge the truth. Notice, if you will, verse 7. Ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So they're ever learning that and never able. The word never means not even ever. Not even ever. Now, Romans one twenty eight tells us, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Uh, Romans 10.2, For I bear them record, they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. So Israel had this knowledge of God, but it was not according to righteousness. They had this zeal, but not according to the truth. And these men are never able to come to the, actually the full truth. Here's John Hagee denying that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. A lot of people like him, too. And they resist the truth, verse 8. Verse 8 says, Now as Jannes and Jamres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. So the, to resist means to set oneself against. Now go over to... Um, uh, this word is used again in Acts chapter 7 uh, when, and for the sake of time, I won't turn over there, but, but uh, remember Stephen said to the Pharisees, you do always resist the truth. You always resist the truth. In other words, you're always standing against it. They, 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 they constantly uh, harass Jesus and tried to, to catch him in his words, resisting the truth. They would never receive it. But their condemnation is certain. Notice verse 9. But they shall receive no father, for their folly shall be made manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. In Exodus chapter 8, Exodus chapter 8, it's talking here about Jannes and Jambres. These were the magicians in Egypt that imitated Moses. Remember how the magicians, you know, Moses put down his staff and it became a serpent and so they threw down their staffs and theirs became serpents Moses serpent ate all theirs and and then you know they did some other miracles and, and they did the same thing but there came a point where they couldn't do it anymore Exodus 8 verse 16 <clears throat> it says and they said unto Moses say unto Aaron the Lord said unto Moses say unto Aaron stretch out thy rod and smite the dust of the land that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt and they did so, for Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and smote the dust of the earth, and it became lice and man and beast. 
All the dust of the land became life throughout the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice upon man and upon beasts. Then the magicians said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he hearkened not on them, as the Lord hath said. And the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh. Lo, he cometh forth to the water and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Else if thou wilt not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies upon thee, and upon thy servants, upon thy people, into thy houses, and the houses of Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies, and also the ground whereon they are. And, I, and notice verse 22. And I will sever in that day the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there. To the end thou mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth, and I will put a division between my people and thy people Tomorrow shall this sign be. You know, Paul says, their folly will be known. That word folly means madness, foolishness, and I really don't like using this word public, but stupidity. And here are American pastors doing things like this. What are they showing? They're showing their foolishness and their madness. They're showing who they really are. Isn't it any wonder America's in trouble? Look at, uh, go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets coming to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast in the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto you them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and, what's that next word? Doeth them. In uh, verse 24, and also in verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. You know, so he's illustrating what true faith constitutes. He that heareth my sayings and doeth them. Doeth them. And what constitutes false faith is he that heareth my sayings and doeth them not. Verse 26. 
Here they are. These are America's pastors. Are they doing or obeying the doctrines of the Word of God? No, they're not. You know, I had a lady talking to me about her grandson here the other day. She said, you know, typical teenage boy. Struggling with things that teenagers struggle with. I'm a little slow sometimes. But I thought afterward, you know what his big, one of his big problems is? You know, his parents are trying to steer him in the right direction. But you know what a real big problem is? He doesn't have a church that will teach all the counts of God. That drinking is condemned by God. Drugs, you know, all that stuff. In other words, they, they won't touch these issues. That's a big church around here. It's got Baptist on his name, too. They won't touch that issue because they believe it's okay. You know, we've got a lot of theologians today that think it's okay. They, don't, they can't rightly understand Scripture. In other words, they won't, they won't teach all the counts of God. And this brings me to the last point. This is convincing proof, proofs of the life of God. Notice verses 10 through 12. I, I must hurry. Thou hast fully, here's the positive, convincing proofs. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. But out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So he gives, and I... And, and I Listen to them as seven here because I combine some of them. But first convincing proof is sound doctrine. My doctrine. Doctrine is teaching. Paul talked, you know, over and over he talked about sound, having sound doctrine in 1 Timothy 1.10. Uh, he says, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, for liars, for perjured perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Uh, You know, in chapter 4, 1 through 6, chapter 5, verse uh, 17, uh, that the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 to 4, preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall heat to themselves teachers having itching ears. You see, sound doctrine. If you're going to teach sound doctrine, you have to teach all the counsel of God. And that includes you addressing all the issues, issues that pertain to life. Drinking, drugs, dress, you know, all these things. Marriage, it's all in there. Child training, we don't have to go to the world for our child training. The world has no clue. Sound doctrine. And so our young people growing up in churches that don't teach sound doctrine, they have no direction. They're not taught. This is, God condemns drinking. Or immorality, or homosexuality, or transgenderism, or anything of that nature. Because that's not my lane. It's disgusting. 
Secondly, sound doctrine, a life that bears witness to the truth. Um, so he says, my doctrine and then my manner of life. Manner of life. That means, the word manner there means course of life. You know, Paul tells us about his manner of life in Acts 24, in Acts 26, when he's testifying before Agrippa and before Felix. And, and then in Philippians chapter 3, again, he tells us about how he was raised a Pharisee. He counted all that but dung, that he might follow Christ. His manner of life. His purpose. What was Paul's purpose? Follow me here. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. I must say, this is convicting. Acts chapter 9, verse, verse 15 and 16. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me. Speaking about Paul. Ananias, he's speaking, the Lord speaking to Ananias. For he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. I'm going to go to Galatians chapter 1. 23. Galatians 1, 23. But they heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preaches the faith with once he once destroyed. And they glorified God in me. Chapter 6, verse 14. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. And then Philippians 1.20. Philippians 1.20. This is what it means to be crucified unto the world. Philippians 1.20. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose, I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having desire to part and be with Christ, which is far better, Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming again uh, to you again. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. Paul said, I, me to live as Christ is to God's gain. And he said, I'd, you know what? He said, I'd rather die. But you know what he said? That choice is not mine to make. So if the Lord wants me to stay here and continue to suffer and preach, I'm willing. Let me ask you something. Why would not Joel Osteen come out and condemn homosexuality? What would happen if he did? 
there'd be a mass exodus from his church. Yankee Stadium would no more be sold out when he goes there to speak. The guy that he would like most to meet in 2008 would publicly, probably publicly, criticize and condemn him. That is Barack Obama. You see, Paul said, my purpose isn't to be famous. My purpose is to glorify Christ. Whether by life or by death. Faith, which means fidelity or faithfulness, long-suffering, charity, patience. These are characteristics or proofs of the life of God. And then this one, a willingness to suffer, verse 11. Persecutions, affliction, which came unto me in Antioch and at Comium and at Lystra. What persecution I endured, but out of them all, the Lord delivered me. You know, it, at Antioch, this is Antioch of Pisidia, not where he was sent from, but Antioch of Pisidia, he was expelled from the city in Acts chapter 13, verses 50 through 2. They were, they were, they were going to try and stone him. And so he was expelled out of their coast. So he, he flees, he goes to Iconium, and as a result of the preaching of the gospel there, an attempt was made on their lives, and they fled to Lystra. And at Lystra, he preaches the gospel, he heals a man that was lame, and so they want to offer sacrifice to him and Barnabas, and they run in and, and say, no, 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 don't do this. We're just men like you. We're not gods. And some Jews from Iconium come around and stir up those same people, and they take them out of the city and stone them and leave them for dead. Again, if America's pastors would tell the truth, they'd have a lot of stones hurled at them. You see, if if there's no willingness to pay the price, that's evident there's no real life. You know, in Mark, there's a verse that says the violence taketh it by force. That means when a person is truly saved, they will do anything to follow the Lord. And number seven, verse 12 says, Yea, and all that will of God in Christ Jesus, not may, not might, shall suffer persecution. There will be a hatred by the world. To a person that lives for God, and the, the more you live for God, the more animosity that's going to come your way. Jesus told us this in John 15. John 15, 18 through 16. Chapter 16, he told us, if the world hates me, it's going to hate you. You know, and And I know this is kind of hard for us to understand sometimes, but Bible believers have always been hated by the world. Always have been. This article is March 8, 2016. It's called uh, Propaganda News. The title is A Psychopolitical Hatred of Christianity by David Rissolata says, there is little doubt that there is a war waging against Christianity in the United States. 
Every time the name of Christ is mentioned, there are liberals taking offense and acting as if their rights are trampled on. Again, I remind you, Joel Osteen doesn't say Christ. He just talks about God. Truthfully, it's the rights of Christians that are being trampled on as laws are being passed on a nationwide scale forcing Christians to surrender their values in the name of tolerance. For example, U.S. Congress is currently considering a bill that would prohibit Christians from exercising their conscience by doing things like refusing to bake a wedding cake for homosexual weddings. Another good example is in Oklahoma where State Representative Emily Virgin, who's a Democrat, is introducing legislation to force Christians to identify themselves by placing a sign. Think of this. Christians to identify themselves by placing a sign on their place of business indicating they refuse to partake in activities that go against their religious beliefs. Do you remember what Hitler did to the Jews? One of the first things he did was what? He made them put a sign in their yard identifying who they were. While the left goes to great extents to prove the actions of Christians are intolerant, the truth is actually quite different. Researchers from the, the University of North Texas found that there is an intense hatred of Christianity among the nation's elite and that those of professing tolerance in society do not consider intolerant to discriminate against Christians. This is because the elite have been so successful in their efforts to discredit their Christian religion that many people actually believe the false ideas that Christians are oppressive and bigoted. Of course, there's a lot of hypocrisy in religion itself. People who believe that because they are Christian, they can behave in any manner they choose because they have been saved. Yeah. This is likely due to the humanist or communist influence in the church. One of the most sought-after goals of communism is to destroy Christianity and replace it with new social religion. The following quotes are from the listed goals of the Communist Party, which were entered into the congressional record in 1963. Just a couple of them here. First one is infiltrate the churches and replace, replace revealed religion with social religion. Discredit the Bible and emphasize the need for an intellectual, intellectual maturity which does not need a religious crutch. Eliminate prayer or any phase of religious expression in the schools on the ground that it violates the principle of separation of church and state. You know, it's thinking about that. Joel Osteen has no signs of Christianity in his church. No crosses, no Bible pictures, nothing like that. Because it might be offensive. You can walk in there and not know it's a church. Um... But you see, proof, convincing proof of the life of God is there will be hatred by the world. You know, when you look at the world scene, you look at this, the scene of, quote, Christianity, America, it can be very discouraging. But Paul fought it in his day. And we still have the words of the Apostle Paul. We still have the unchanging truth of the word of God. And God's still on the throne. And we can still be victorious. We can still be victorious. Have you, you ever have your kids say to you, well, everybody else is doing it. Now, why are they saying that? Because you're not. Just because everybody else is doing it doesn't mean we have to. 
And next week, we're going to finish this chapter, by the way, so we can get some more encouragement. But, but uh, uh, you know, we can have, we can know the truth, we can hold to the truth, we can be faithful to the truth, and God can give us victory, even this life. And we can stand, even though the world and much of what is called Christianity is not. We can stand for the truth. Just as Paul did. Paul said, you know, he suffered persecutions, he endured the afflictions, but out of them all, the Lord delivered me. So do you have proof of life, the life of God? Is your faith real? Will it stand the tests that the world's going to throw our way?